Please take your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians, the very last chapter, the very last handful of verses in this last chapter. Well, here we go. We're going to attempt to boil it all down and bring it all together here uh, as we've been doing this in this last chapter of our study of First Corinthians. Now, I'm not sure how many we've done. I, I think it's somewhere between 80 and 85 messages that we've had in First uh, Corinthians. But uh, we've been at it for a few years. And, and so, uh, so this study, it really is a culmination uh, of things. Now, <clears throat> this letter is a course correction letter. It's stated that the very top of your notes to remind you. And why we say it that way, this is a church with lots of problems. I like the fact that one of the letters in Scripture was to a church with lots of problems. Not that I'm happy for their problems, but it's that if there's anything I've learned in living my life, and in living my life around people, not just my own family, but everyone else, we have lots of what? Problems. Those are here because sin is real, sin exists. And so it's encouraging to know there's a letter in the Bible that sort of hits many of them. So it has this corrective feel. Now, as I was thinking about this, it really is important for us to think of 1 Corinthians this way. It has the feel like a father talking to a son. It really does. Sort of like Proverbs 3, when Solomon told his teenage son, imagine telling a teenage son this, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then telling your teenage son this, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. That's the correction part. But notice, the father corrects because the father loves. See? Loves. And it doesn't always have to be words. The actions underlie that, make that statement, right? So in another sense, as in this very sense, this is a love letter. It is written to reprove, but the reprove is meant to connect them right to the love of God, which is being extended out to them through the love of an apostle. It's a love letter. 
Now, I'm pretty sure this one wouldn't have made the Hallmark list, okay? Uh, not, I mean, it's a love letter, but it's got some, you know, some grit to it. It's not kind of, you know, I mean, like that Proverbs passage says, I mean, love isn't just, you know, syrup and hugs. I mean, um, there's stuff that comes with it that's necessary. Sometimes love stings and says tough things that need to be said, right? Sometimes love, like in chapter 4, comes with a rod. Sometimes with a rebuke. And that's why I say the best way to see this love letter is like a father to a child. A good father wants to be helpful. A good mother wants to be helpful. He wants to guide his child into good. Okay? He wants to protect, yes. And he knows that there is a difference between being a critic and being an encouraging corrector. Do you understand that? I think it's important, I think, for us to kind of maybe meditate on that. The difference between being a critic and being an encouraging corrector. The critic just says the stuff and really doesn't even care if it hurts. You walk away and you say, tough, that's your deal. You're the one making this decision. Oh, well, I guess you'll live your life and you're going to be ruined. That's a critic. The encouraging corrector says, I got to tell you this, and it hurts because I know you're going to respond probably negative to what I'm about to say, but you got to hear this. And I'm going to be there with you every step of the way, right next to you, as you work through this. But you've got to hear this. You see, love wants the best for whatever the object of that love is. That's what true love does. It wants the best for whatever the object of that love is. You know, if you see something that is hurting the thing or person you love, you can't help but do something about it, right? That's what this letter is. I mean, Paul never stopped being like that with this church, loving them like a father. In fact, from where we're at here in 1 Corinthians 16, let me give you a vision to the future. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now watch this, verse 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. Now listen to that. Watch this. That's what a parent is like. I don't want to be a burden to you. I'm not trying to get something out of you. You know, I'm not trying to use you. You think I'm trying to just use you. I'm not trying to use you. My goal for you is simple. It's just you. That's what Paul says. He says, I don't seek what is yours, but you. I'm after you. Loving you, helping you. 
Verse 14, he says, For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Now, what's he saying when he says that? He's saying, My life goes in this one direction, son, and that is to be responsible for you. To care for whatever need you have. It's how I work. It's how I operate. Not because I think I'm going to get a great name for myself. But love says, I just want you to be the best of what you can be. Verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. That's what a good parent says and means. The cost to my life to make yours a good one doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, whatever it is, whatever it is. I will spend my soul, I'll, I'll pour it out for you. So there so here now verse fifteen makes sense. If I love you more, am I to be loved the less? Can, can you feel the hurt that Paul has there? And this is the hurt of a father. And what Paul goes on to tell them is that all his words, the letter of correction in 1 Corinthians, the letter of defense in 2 Corinthians, it's, it's all him pouring out love to them. Are you going to love me less for telling you the truth? This is the reason why I call this a love letter. No wonder you get to verses 14 through 24 of our study in 1 Corinthians 16. And at the very end, he reminds them of this very thing. Look at verse 14. Let all things that you do be done in love. He says, okay, I'm at the end here. Listen, this is what I got to tell you. Just make sure, do it all in love. All the things. What what are your things? I don't know what your things are. Whatever those things are, let it be done in love. And then in verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Verses 14 through 24 is just this one big sandwich. It's a love sandwich what I'm calling the love sphere. And in between is this fellowship, that is the relationships that he has built with them through the years that he has with them and that they have with him. And so what he's saying is this love looks like, this is what this love is supposed to look like in the sphere of fellowship. These are the markers of love, of that love, the evidence of that love. You'll know that it's happening when you see these seven things. So let's go back to them and revisit the first four and then finish it up. First, there will be outreach, and that's verse 15. Look at it. What does a loving church look like when the fellowship is going? There's outreach. There's an extension of ourselves to the lost. Verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, 
You know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. Now you remember the family, uh, what we talked about, last time we talked about the family of Stephanus. And you remember we talked about how the family of Stephanus, the, he was the first convert, the first Christian there in this area. Achaia is the area where Corinth is at there. It's also the area where Athens is at. And, and so we don't know exactly where he was from, but most likely from Corinth. But he's from that area. Maybe he lived in between or something like that. And the Lord used them in that area to reach the lost. That is what the, the, those, those two words, first fruits, mean. And you can see the concept of that in, in the Old Testament, or you can just go back to 1 Corinthians 15 when we studied that and, and remember that. And what he's saying is the first part of the harvest to come was you guys. You guys were only the beginning, and the Lord used you to reach this area. Phenomenal. Tremendous. God used them to plant the seed of the gospel there. He used them to water that area with the gospel. And he used them to win people to Christ right there in that area, the whole family, see. And so the thing we learn here is that we know there is love when the church extends itself out. Beloved, oh, that we would have a love for the loss. A love for the loss. It starts there. It starts with the care. It starts with a a movement in your heart. It starts with some emotion, some commitment from that emotion in that direction. Luke 19, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You remember his love for the woman at the well in John 4? He ignored his own hunger and his own thirst. Remember the, the disciples went to town. Hey, are you going to come with us? No, I'm here. I'm right where I need to be. Are you going to go down to that well and get your own drink? No, I have my own drink. And in that place... He ignored his own needs so that he could give this poor woman the living water to satisfy her dry and weary soul. Did this woman know that she was thirsty? No. She had had five husbands and she was on this next guy trying to get her thirst quenched. And Jesus was telling her, hey, how's it going? Are you still thirsty? Yeah, I know. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. You keep trying to convince people that your life is not miserable, but it is. And I'm here to let you know that it is. But that's okay. I'm the answer. I'm the drink that you need. That's what we should be like. We should be concerned about the lost everywhere and it should drive us to support missionaries abroad and it should get us to open our mouths to others. That's what the sphere of love looks like in the fellowship of the church. You can say it this way, love shares, right? Secondly, there will be ministry, verse 15. Now notice the second mark, verse 15, same family, 
and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. I love this. Some people are great at sharing, but they're not great at serving. And it's the other, some are the other way around, great at serving and not sharing. The Stephanus family, they were good at both directions. The word devoted here, Greek, tosso, means they attached themselves to it. They got themselves under it. They, they, uh, literally, the, the phrase here, they became addicted to it. Ooh, I like that. I like that. There's a song out there I remember from the 80s, Addicted to Love. This means it in a whole different way. Okay? Addicted to serving the saints. That's an incredible thought. You remember from last time all the ways that we talked about what that service looks like. It's this word diakonia in the Greek. It's a word that means just general basic service. And uh, it, it can this kind of service used in Scripture can mean using your spiritual gifts. It can mean using your, your uh, money. It can be using your food. It can be using your time. It can be using your muscles to move things or fix things. It can be cleaning things or whatever. Just basic service. And in the fellowship, what that service is to look like is like an addiction. I can't help it. Got to do it. Got to serve. Where are you going? I got to go. That person doesn't need. Wait a minute. But what about the whatever? I know. But look at the need. The need. So, oh man. Okay. It's all right. Listen, we are all put into the ministry. And that's the idea behind 1 Peter 2. And that means we're all, all of us are in the service. Did you know that? We're all saved to serve. And so we can say it this way. Love not only shares... Love serves. That's another mark right there in the fellowship. Real practical look at love. See, And then third, there will be submission. And that's another mark, submission. Notice this, verse 16. This is the urge from verse 15. That you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the works and labors. Subjection to who? Such men like Stephanus. What's he saying? I mean, he's saying this. You see a person who is just busting it out and serving, we should come under that person. Come under that person. Anyone? Yes, anyone. Was Stephanus a leader of the church? We don't know. He's just some some dude serving. Okay? Some guy's just serving. Okay? We're to come under. You know, we submit to people like that. Oh, who should we submit to? Should it be the guy that's barking out orders and everything? Well, no, it should be the people that are that are just serving it out and sharing their lives like, like a Stephanus. We said this last time, Christian living is an under position in our living. We come under others. Always under Always under. We're not looking to be on the top. Always under. And when it makes sense for the Lord to put us 
in some top position. You know how we approach that top position? Always under. Always under. That's how you do it. Always under. You're always remembering, oh yeah, First Peter 5, chief shepherd, Jesus. Right? Always under. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up, James 4 says. Second Samuel 22, the Lord saves the humble, but his eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. We understand that and we come under others so we can serve them. Such a bad word in this day and age, especially in our country's submission. I am not under anybody. That's kind of the mantra of today, right? Uh-huh, right? I mean, I, I, I'm the captain of my ship. And what is your ship? Yourself. Well, I'm here to let you know you got holes in the boat. Okay? Come under. Be willing to come under someone. Who? Those that serve. The godly ones are serving and we see that and we come under them because they are setting the pace for us. So what do we have in the body and the fellowship? Love. What's that look like? Love shares. Love serves. Love submits. Fourth, there will be compassion. Excuse me, companionship. Companionship. Now we left off with this one, so we've got to come back to this one. What does love look like in this sphere of fellowship? It looks to refresh others. And we see that there in verse 17. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Now, here is this church at Corinth. And, you know, we already know from this letter that it was not a refreshing church, okay? We know that. These guys were more like a bunch of leeches than they were people that offer refreshment, right? I mean, so many arguments, people suing each other, boasting over each other, putting others down, and selfishness all over the place, and indulgence all over the place, taking people's, you know, um, spouses and so forth. They needed to hear this. Paul is saying, this is what gives me joy People that refresh others. You guys, you, you as a church couldn't come to me to do that. But these guys from your church did. So here's what I got to say to you. Be like them. Now, it's not that they wouldn't come to Paul to do this. They couldn't. So they sent these guys. So in a sense, that's good. But what Paul is saying is, I want you to be like this all the time. He's saying that's what love looks like in this sphere of fellowship. It looks to refresh others and get refreshed by others. There's a sort of a synergy in the church that is so important. And you get that from being with other believers. It's important that we're with one another because the Lord uses that to create spark and 
encouragement and motivation even for you to keep running the race. Ephesians 4.16 By what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See it? Each part kind of rubbing against one another, helping each other, causing there to be strength. You know, when it comes to uh, your body, human body, you get a part of your human body that is hurting. What, what do you do oftentimes? Physical therapists will tell you, well, strengthen the area around that so that it will help the one area that's weak so that it can eventually become strong. In other words, each part around, when the one part is weak, does its work until that weak becomes strength. You know, Paul loved being around people, especially believers. There's a companionship. There's a a refreshing dynamic that is vital to being a Christian. Listen, we need this. We need the transparency. We need the accountability. We need the sharpening that comes from one another. We need the encouragement that is there. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6, Paul put it this way, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice more. What a wonderful verse. Paul says, I needed God's comfort, and it came from Titus. It came from a person. He refreshed my soul with comfort. God's comfort. His kind of comfort. Notice, by the way, that Paul says in verse 6, he was a little depressed. Listen, if Paul can get depressed, I think we're in good company, right? I mean, he refreshed me. You, I mean, you never know how much of an answer you are to another believer who might even be depressed and you provide refreshment just being around him. Staying close. Visiting. Sending out a text. Maybe an email. Or checking in just to see, hey, what's going on? You doing okay? Hey, I was thinking about you. Praying for you. You do that? He said, well, I have to have a reason why I do that. No, you don't. I'm telling you. I will be on a walk and bing, somebody, some, some person comes to my mind. I don't know why. And I don't want to get too mystical here. That, oh, they probably, probably the Lord is, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't want to research that thing. I'm not sure about it. You know what I do? I just get simple. Start praying. Maybe I'll text that person and say, hey, what do you need? Praying for you. You all right? You good? Paul, at the end of his life, valued this aspect of love so much. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9. Listen to this. This is one of my favorite sections, by the way, in Scripture, because it's so bubbly and full of life. And why I say that is, is, is because 
when you read it, some of the stuff is, frankly, a little bit dark. Paul says, hey, I'm about to die. This is it, facing the end. My, you know, the two barrels are pointing right at me here, and I'm just kind of, this is it. Heads on the chopping block, literally for him. Here's Paul, he tells Timothy, make, make every effort to come to me soon. Here's Paul in prison. He knows what's coming around the corner. He says, I need you to come to me, Timothy. Why? Verse 10, Demas has deserted me. He's left Christ for the world. You think that bothered Paul's soul? Yeah, it did. It bothered him. What did he do? Sulk? Go off into a corner? Go off all alone and say, leave me alone. I need to really have alone time. Not at all. Not at all. He says, I need to be around people that love Christ to refresh my soul. See? And then verse 11, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he's useful to me for service. And I tell you, if you're just reading that for the very first time and you don't have context, you're going you're gonna to blow by something that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. You see, is it really? Yeah. You go back and read Acts 13 and you realize that John Mark chickened out, that's how Paul would have said it, bailed because it got hard. The ministry got hard, so he went back to his mother. He said, come on, you're kind of laying it thick. No, that's literally what he did. He went back home to mom. A little safer there, a little more familiar. So Acts 15, Paul says, Barnabas says, hey, let's take my cousin Mark with us. John says, or Paul says, uh-uh, not that guy. He's a coward. We don't take cowards with us. Barnabas says, where's your mercy? Where's your forgiveness? I'm not sure exactly how it all rolled out, but it seems like it would have been something like that. You get the second Timothy four. And Paul says, let me read it to you again. Pick up Mark, bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. Whoa, what happened? I don't know. Somehow they reconcile. Somehow now they're together. Somehow now it's Mark's good stuff. I absolutely love that line. He's useful. We don't know when they forgave each other, when when Paul forgave them. We don't know if they kissed and made up that way. We don't know. have no idea. What we know is now Paul sees that same guy as one who will refresh him. Verse 13, bring the cloak. It's kind of cold here, you know. He can be practical. Bring the books, especially the parchments. That's the the rolled up scripture. And also, or or the parchments could be referring to just something that he can write on. And if that's the case, he's referring to something, a sermon that he's going to, he's got one more sermon left, right? I got to write. I've got to communicate. I've got to. Get my love out. I've got to get the love of God out to somebody else. But 
the thing I want you to see is that Paul doesn't want to be left alone. He wants brothers in the Lord. Why? Because he understands the value of refreshment, the value of companionship, refreshing companionship. So love shares, love serves, love submits, love soothes. Let's move on. Fifth, there will be honor. There will be honor. Verse 18, back to verse 18. He says, therefore, acknowledge such men. Now we need to think about this one. Love and the spirit of fellowship takes men like that, families like Stephanus, guys like Fortunatus, Fortunatus and, and Achaicus. And they show respect. They, they honor them. He is saying, but isn't that giving too much credit to man and not to God? And, I mean, isn't that wrong? No, it's vital. Let me explain. Look at the word acknowledge. The idea of that word acknowledge is to highly value a person. It is to see a person in the right way and recognize them. Now, what kind of person do you show this kind of honor to? The kind that does all those other things we saw. Okay? Those that share the gospel with others. Those that serve the saints. Those that come under others with a submission. Those that soothe and refresh. Listen, honor those kind. You can say this is love that salutes. Okay? Now, you know, in this church, they didn't honor others much. I mean, mean, they, they, they like to honor themselves. And like in chapter 1, when they did honor others, it was to boast about the ones that they honored. And so they did it like this. Well, uh, we are of Apollos. We're Apollos type of teachers. And in chapter 4, Paul has to defend himself a bit. He gets sarcastic. He says, you know, you guys have become kings, but we were just lowly paupers and helpless without you. Verse 18, some have become arrogant. And they have no honor or respect for Paul. And you remember they got into these little faction groups. In fact, if you go to chapter 9, you remember Paul there is is defending his apostleship and in saying we had the right to get supported by you guys. But I want you to notice, Paul said in in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, We never took a dime from you guys. We had the right. But we didn't take anything from you. Acts 18, we worked making tents. Fixing tents, you know. You see Paul defending himself in this section. And and what is interesting is that although Paul says, we never asked for money from you, though we could have, you never get the idea that they were offering. That's pretty sad, isn't it? I mean, they had very, very little honor for Paul. Paul says, I didn't serve you guys for the honor. I did it because I loved Christ and I love you. Now, 
When you put all this together, the pattern of fellowship and love of the body looks like this. You've got people sharing and serving and submitting and soothing and setting the path and the example and the pattern for what Christian fellowship looks like, what godly living looks like. And I'll tell you, those are the ones that eventually rise to the top. They don't do it to make a name for themselves. They do it because their eyes are on Christ. He's all they see. Those are the ones eventually that become the leaders, Hebrews 13, 7, whose faith we are to follow. They don't need titles. They just do it because of their love, not for um, applause, but their love for Him. They do it out of a love for adoration that belongs to Christ. You say, really? I mean, is this, this is how it works? Yeah, I mean, didn't Jesus say in John 13, here is the leader, the one who washes one another's feet as an example to others? Matthew 20 and Mark 10, anyone who wishes to become a leader, he must become servant. The ones you honor are those kinds of people, the sharing, serving, submissive ones who refresh souls. Let me give you an example of that. Philippians 2. We've talked about this guy before, Epaphrodites. We've even, when we went through Philippians, we, we studied about him. And he was a guy just longing just to be used to serve. And, and he heard that Paul was in prison. And so he went to Paul there to serve him. And he did so in a way that was kind of representative of Philippi. And while he was there serving, he became sick to the point of death in his service to him. And and that church at Philippi really felt bad for him and, and brought them great sorrow. And Paul says this, and he became sick because he was serving so hard, so much. You see, take take a break, pal. Not Paul. He never says that to the guy or about the guy. He says this, God showed him mercy and he kept him alive. And here's what I want you to hear. Verse 29. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Receive him with all joy. It's almost like Paul is saying, listen, he's going to come to you and just start serving. He's not going to be looking for any recognition. That guy will hit the ground running. I know it. And it doesn't even matter if he's sick or not. He's just going to go. So receive him with all joy. And hold men like him in high regard. See? Because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. He never says, hey, give the guy a break. Why don't you let him have a two week vacation or something? It wasn't that at all. It was simply, listen, when he comes, he's going to be serving again. Just make sure you acknowledge people like that. Hold men like him in high regard. Understand that's the pace. He's the pace setter. That's what you should be like, Paul says. 
Why did Epaphroditus do it? Didn't he know that he was sick? That it might not go well? Yes, he knew that. He did it for the love. He did it for the Lord. He did it for the Philippian church because they couldn't be there and he represented them. He did it for Paul. And so Paul says, honor a guy like him. Honor people that risk their lives to serve Christ, to serve others. To serve when you can't serve. Honor those kinds. And I'll tell you, it should be, you, know, you shouldn't have to wait, by the way, for a Mother's Day to honor your mom. You recognize it, you see it, honor. Now, beloved, we can honor the wrong kind of people. We honor the successful in the eyes of the world. We honor the smart. We honor the strong. We honor the standouts. Paul has God's heart and he says, honor ones like the three that he mentioned in verse 17 who share and serve and submit. That's the idea behind the word acknowledge. Recognize, set them apart with esteem. Set them apart as people that we should be following. Now let me show you a little what this word looks like in a deeper way. 1 Timothy 5.17 Here are people we set apart and recognize or honor. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That's our word honor. And you got these men who they pour them, they pour themselves into this kind of service. I mean, leading us, teaching us, getting deep into the word to take us into a, a path, into a path that we need to be going onto, right? Deep into God's will. And there's sacrifice in it. And, and so we honor them. We honor them with our money, with our respect. And you know, only humble men can truly teach God's word because they come face to face with who they really are and who God really is when they study. It's impossible to be studying the word of God and to feel great about yourself. Have you noticed that? Listen, and those people are doing it for their, they do it, I mean, all the time as a, as a way of living. <coughs> And so they come out of that little cave or dungeon, wherever they are, studying. And he says, uh, honor, double honor men like that. And what I believe double honor, by the way, means is recognize them with your words and then recognize them with your financial support to keep them going, see. There's another place to look at, First Thessalonians 5. Verse 12 says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Sounds a little bit like 1 Timothy 5, right? Appreciate them. Literally, actually, the, the phrase literally says that you know them. Isn't that interesting? Know them. Get to know those who give you the word and who shepherd you. Get to know them. Not a shallow knowledge either. I mean, he's not just saying, find out who they are. And he's not, he's not saying, fact check them. Okay, he's not saying that either. <laughs> we live in a fact check you know, age, don't we? Oh, fact check that. 
who are you fact-checking with? Right? Well, this group over here. Well, what about this group over here? I only fact-check with this group. Okay, so you're not really fact-checking. Okay, got it. He's saying, really know them. Spend time with them, getting to know them. Get close enough to see the example of their lives for you. But then it moves out, verse 13, and that you esteem them very highly in love. I love the fact that he says it that way. Don't esteem them for brownie points. Don't esteem them for, you know, don't forget, I patted you on the back. You're going to pat me on the back later on, right? We, I know my own flesh. I can do that in my own flesh. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That's the idea of 1 Corinthians 16, 18. Esteem, esteem them very highly in love. Love honors the servants. It salutes them. He said, but if we honor them, won't that take away their reward from the Lord? You ever think that way? I know you do. Me too. You know how you fight against that? You know what the reward from the Lord is? That's his department. Okay? You're not him. He never asked you to be his reward uh, caretaking person. Okay? That's not you. Let the Lord do his rewarding when and how he wants to. For you, though, esteem men like that. Okay? That's just what it says. Don't do it for their success or strength or aesthetics or talents. Do it for their work. Don't even do it because of their position. Do it for their work. Why do we struggle honoring others who humbly work like that? Listen, often, often it is because we are just like the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, remember the first three chapters? They struggle with jealousy, it says there. We want to be like them and maybe are not. And so we say or do nothing to esteem them because, well, we don't want them to get a big head. I mean, you know, they might get you know, some sort of Caesar complex or something. Very fascinating thought in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. by the way. Maybe mark this one down. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Okay, I mean, that's a big thing. I mean, someday they're going to answer to God for how they took care of you. Now, that, that is a haunting, you know, James 3.1, same thing. That is a haunting thing for anybody who is shepherd, anybody who is, is in a place of leadership. So uh, we obey and submit and God will take care of them. But there's another thought here, verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. It's talking about the same kind of grief that you do with, that you mourn for somebody that died, for this would be unprofitable for you. Don't let them feel like when they serve you, it's more like a funeral than a birthday party, Right? Listen, you honor them and you will notice it goes well for you. 
There's a profit, there's profit for you. There's, a, there's, there's just a, a side benefit. They should feel like their service to you is a joy, not a grief, right? Now, there's a great illustration of this in Third John here. Turn there actually for a moment. I want you to actually see this one. Now, John just got saying, we ought to support such men who work for the sake of the name, workers with the truth. And then you get to verse 9. By the way, if you're having trouble finding that third John there, it's uh, closer to Revelation than it is Genesis, all right? I don't know if that's a help to you, but... Uh, Verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now... He might be referring to first John. He could be referring to second John. But he says, uh, I wrote it and he doesn't accept it. We wrote it. So he's, he's, he's now in the place of, of apostles, the apostles. We apostles had a writing and he doesn't accept it. Now who is Diotrephes? Diotrephes is some guy in the church, probably a leader, but the problem is, what about this guy? He loves to be first among them. I'll never forget, I was training these boys, young little boys, uh, and they were all playing little youth football, and they're running around trying to get in shape and everything, and I'm training them, and we did this little race, and these because these three boys, they took off running, and they're running this race against each other. And the one boy reaches out towards the very end to put his hand in front of the other boy so that he can what? Finish first. And I think to, I'm thinking to myself, you don't think I saw that? We all saw that. I mean, you know, you're not first, okay? <laughs> and that's how that worked. I mean, but you know, sometimes we can be, that's what this guy Diotrephes is. You know, it's really interesting when I, when I was thinking about this here. He, he loves for others to see him as the best, and that gets in the way of, of him accepting, John says, what we say. You ever get around somebody that something is said and they're instantly correcting it? Well, no, here's something better. Here's a better way. Here's, some, here's, here's something. Here's how you need to see this differently. Why do you have such a struggle accepting what we say? Immediately you seek to improve this thing, John says. That's amazing. Think about it. Here is an apostle, the last one living. Not only that, it's John. This is the guy that Jesus hardly ever had a bad thing to say about. The apostle of love, tremendous leader, tremendous believer, loves Christ with his whole life, and this guy, Diotrephes, is struggling with John? You've got a real problem. You're struggling with that guy? You have a real problem. This guy not only doesn't accept John's words, verse 10. 
he himself does not receive the brethren either. So there's no fellowship. Can't even fellowship with the guy. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. He was going around church disciplining people. You're out. You're out. You're out. Who are you? This guy's taking matters into his own hands. He, he, he really has a super high view of himself. Okay? He, he doesn't help others. He pushes them out. What do you do with a guy like that? Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. In other words, do not imitate diatrophies. Don't follow him. Don't honor him. You know who you honor? Verse 12, look at it. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. His life matches the word. So guess what? Esteem that guy. Honor that guy. All right, let's get to the last two here so that we can kind of bring this down. Number six, there will be hospitality. There will be hospitality. You can say with this one, this is love that shelters or, you know, that satisfies, that brings in, that seeks, love that seeks, really, seeks, love that seeks to welcome, you could say. Verses 19 to 20. And actually, um, just the first part of 20. Notice the words greet and kiss. We'll, we'll touch on the word kiss in the next point here. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord, which the, with the church that is in, her, in, in their house. All the brethren greet you. Now this is the regular way to end letters. You remember Paul is writing from Ephesus. He said, do all the churches know all the people in Ephesus? No. <laughs> so then why do they greet them? You're greeting people you don't even know? Well, let me say it this way. You have people not knowing other people greeting them. And there's a principle in there. Like one person put it, everybody greets everybody. That's the way it is with Christians. The principle is this. Christian love is an openness to love all people. Especially other believers, no matter if you know them well or not. I can't tell you how many times I have um, had instant deep fellowship with other believers. Does that happen to you? People you don't even hardly know. You don't even know. Whether on an airplane or visiting a church or visiting believers in another country. And I can be there and visiting uh, someone and there for that Sunday. And, and I'm leaving there giving hugs to people that I met, you know, 90 minutes before that. How did that work? I don't know. I just felt connected with them because they love Christ and I love Christ. And here we are. That happens. It's as though we have known each other all our lives. How is that? 
Because Christian love is a hospitality. I mean, by the way, that word means lover of strangers. I mean, we look to extend ourselves even into the lives of people we don't know. Now take a look at this here. You got the churches of Asia greeting those believers in Corinth. Who's that? Ephesus was, um, Paul's writing from Ephesus. Ephesus was connected to in an area of a bunch of different churches. In fact, if you want to see just what these churches were like, read Revelation 2 and 3. Those are those churches. The seven churches. Yeah, six of them all around uh, Ephesus there. And I'm sure that uh, Paul must have told them all about the believers at Corinth. He said, what did he say? There's this church, and it, you know, it has all these problems, so many immature believers there. I mean, you wouldn't believe all the sin that they're committing. No, that's not what he would have said. That would not make them want to greet this church. Paul made sure that they understood there were believers that are in this place in Corinth that loved Christ and were growing. And so these churches say, hi. Okay? Then you have Aquila and Prisca, husband and wife. And Paul, you know, he met them in Corinth. and They worked together. They built tents together. Amazing believing couple. I mean, they were, they, they were the ones that helped straighten out the things that Apollos was teaching with the word. Do you remember that? Acts 18. And they were with Paul in Ephesus and had a church meeting in their home. And they must have been people that had some measure of wealth. And they also must have really felt connected to Paul and his ministry because they're always with him a lot. It's almost like they just travel with him. All right, where are you going next, Paul? We'll go help you out. And so they wanted to send a greeting heartily, it says, in the Lord. I love that because once you get to know Achilla and Priscilla, you you, you realize, ooh, heartily in the Lord? What an endorsement, what an amazing thing. That's wonderful. Now one of the things that stands out as I'm reading through all of this is how significant like-mindedness is to Paul. Remember, we learned that in chapter 1, verse 10. There is, the, there is this deep connection to churches that have a similar view of the gospel and theology and interpret scripture in a similar light, who have similar loves, love for Christ and love for his word and love for one another. You know, and through the years, we have gotten to be connected with you know, Community Bible Church and Fellowship Bible Church and, and Carson and other men like Chris Mueller, who has been here to preach the word, and Roland Sanchez Bob Dielicher and others, and all of that is because of this like-mindedness that we have, see. And then in verse 20, all the brethren greet you, all the believers here at Ephesus. And I just love this. What connects us? Christ, his gospel, his word, right? A biblical view of God, of the doctrines of grace, of Christian living and holiness and so forth. And then there's this Last thing that demonstrates hospitality, a love of strangers. By the way, back in that day, if you traveled, you didn't want to stay in a hotel. Hotels were for prostitutes. You didn't stay there. What you did is you made sure that if there was somebody that you knew in the, in the town and you tried to get, stay at their house. If there, you could stay at somebody's house. 
And so believers were just hospitable to everybody. They opened their homes to everybody, especially travelers, so that you didn't have to stay in that hotel. Love for strangers was just a, a statement of genuine Christianity. All right, you just find a Christian. And the Bible has to say, by the way, a lot about taking strangers in, traveling believers. Second John, Acts, you can read about it. All right, now we need to look at this holy kiss. We'll do that in the seventh point here. Let's call this one, let's say there, there will be affection. You can tell when there's this sphere of, in this sphere of fellowship, where there's love because there's affection. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That was a custom. And you can see this, the way Paul ends a lot of his letters this way. Even others, Peter does. In fact, in many countries, by the way, that's still how you greet and say goodbye with a kiss to the cheek. And back then it was men with men and women with women and I've told you about the wonderful Christian in Russia who was so overtaken by the word after I preached and he gave me this great big hug. He's a big old bearded guy. Big embrace. And he kissed me. <laughs> I don't know if that meant I did a good job or if he's telling me, keep trying. I don't know. I'm not sure what happened. And uh, I, by the way, I was told it could happen. So I wasn't too shocked. You know, I just didn't know it was going to be that guy. Great big beard with great big love. I love it. Now, the idea behind the kiss is affection. And we don't really have a lot of that in America compared to places like in Europe and other places, other countries. At least not pure affection. And it's really sad. It's really interesting to me that when you read the Old Testament, it hardly ever talks about kissing in the romantic way. Did you know that? You can read Song of Solomon, it does there, but that makes sense. Thinking about husband and wife there. It's always friendship and affection between close relationships and hospitality. In fact, the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus will be betrayed by a close friend with a kiss. It was a demonstration of affection. A sign of affection. It's interesting that in the church throughout our history, that used to be a big thing, a holy kiss. In fact, it was so big, no surprise, they institutionalized it. They kind of just made it part of their, you know, mass. The holy kiss. In fact... I remember this in the Catholic Church uh, growing up during Easter at what, what is called the Stations of the Cross. They would bring out, and I am, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this, this really happened. They would bring out this wooden crucifix that probably was about six feet long. Okay? Huge thing. And it would get dragged up to the front of the area just like this. And they would put it out. And then you had the guy some priest or whatever, somebody, with the towel. So what do you get the towel for? Because then everybody would line up and they would one by one come and kiss the feet of this wooden Jesus. 
So that's just tremendous affection. No, it's not. That is useless. He's not on a he's not on a piece of wood on a cross. He said, "Well, it's just picturing that." No, I, we've got Christ in our hearts. That's why the holy kiss is not for that. It's for one another. They got so taken away. That's not what this is saying. Listen, what is it saying? That there should be affection in the church between believers. Now, I'm not sure what the sign of affection would be today in America. It's sad that you can't show the kiss like they did back then. I'm not saying we should start something here, okay? Be really clear. Be really clear. I'll take a hug, okay? At least a handshake. Come on, you know, right? Maybe a bump. A little fist bump, elbow tap. I'm, I'm more of a hugger, I'll tell you that. So I apologize in advance if, if any of those have made any of you like uncomfortable. Like, whoa, I'm not a hugger person. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'll just tell you next time when you act uncomfortable, better than a holy kiss, right? I mean, you know, holy hug, okay? It could have been, it could have been more. Um, I believe that's what the Bible is saying with this. Be affectionate with one another. That is the mark of love and the sphere of fellowship. That's how you know. And I mean, there is a resistance or a lack. If there's a resistance or a lack of affection, that's usually an indication of a coldness or that you are not comfortable or at home with the relationship. All right, let's look at how this ends. Verse 21. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Paul always had someone else write his letters and so... They call that an amanuensis. He had bad eyes, Galatians 4 tells us. And so this is a a touch of affection too. He finds any way that he can just be affectionate. And so he says, I'm I'm writing this with all my hands so you guys know that I, I love you. This is human. This is the human touch. It's like saying, I'm here, guys. It's kind of like we you know what we do sometimes, even if you type out a letter at the very end, what do you do? You get out your pen and you, in cursive, that's why you teach your kids how to write in cursive, right? It's a better touch. In cursive, you know, you write that thing and, you know, and if you do it in blue ink, it stands out, right? All right, here you go. I don't know. Some, one teacher, some teacher told, taught me that many years ago. I'm not sure. I guess it's sort of stuck with me. And then you have verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be a curse. Maranatha. Whoa, okay. I mean, boy, that ends it pretty strong there. Curse you, you know what I mean? What is this? Well, um, the word for love is not agapao here. It's phileo. And I believe what he's saying is, this is not the love of will and commitment, but a love of friendship. He's saying, if a person can't even muster up friendship love for the Lord, he's probably not saved then. He's probably not a believer then. You can't even muster up friendship love for the Lord? Listen, love defines us. And he's saying if you don't have basic love for the Lord, then you'll never have love for others. And that's how true biblical love flows, by the way, for Christ and then to others. 
What I also love about this word is it anticipates failure. In other words, the Lord says, I want agapao love, but I'll take phileo love if that's all you have. That's all you got. I mean, in terms of like, oh boy, I really did did it again. Well, listen, you come back. Lord, I love you though. Okay, let's start right there. Okay. John 21, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. I'm okay. Let's go. You say, what about the curse thing? This is 1 Peter 4. Judgment begins with the household of God. Let the one who says he is a Christian and says he is a part of the church but doesn't have love, let that one know you don't belong. Because love defines us. And then you have Maranatha. This is an Aramaic word. It means come Lord. Come Lord now. And I believe it is connected to the judgment of curse. And that what he means is come and clean your house so that all that remains is love. Make this a loving community right here. And then the last thing, verses 23 and 24, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. You know what that tells me? That Paul believes that he has the grace of the Lord Jesus with him. May the Lord's love be with you. May my love be with you because I have his love. That's what he's saying. Now, how do we handle relationships in the church? Love shares. Love serves. Love submits. Love soothes. It salutes. Love seeks to welcome. And love stretches in affection. And I hope that our church can be described that way. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We want to say that in the agapao way, but we come with phileo love, Lord, and we just ask you, dear Father, to take these things that we've learned from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 all the way to 16 and pray, Lord, that you would help us to work through these things to uh, be a church that can be marked by this kind of love, Father. Thank you for your patience and your faithfulness to us while we grow in this way. And Father, um, I pray that, this, that we would just take another step in that direction. And it would be, Lord, because you've done this work in us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.